Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, The Fellowship of the Gospel, with a message entitled Confidence in the Fellowship. So now turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Are you confident in your salvation? Now, I'm not asking you whether you're confident that Christ's death covers the sins of those who trust in him. Are you confident that Christ's death covers your sins personally? And are you confident that you will live and die in the faith, faithful to Christ and his gospel to the end? So much is at stake in that question. I'd like to tell the story of two men, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. These two men were martyrs for the Christian faith in 1555 in the city of Oxford. Both were influential preachers in England. Indeed, both were leaders in the English Reformation. Hugh Latimer was Bishop of Worcester and publicly preached for the need to get an English translation of the Bible, a very controversial thing to say in those days, an idea roundly condemned by the Catholic Church. Nicholas Ridley was the Bishop of London and was also a considerable scholar and also a leader in the English Reformation. When Mary, Queen of Scots, ascended the throne, these two men fell out of favor, and both of them were condemned to be burned at the stake together. But before their martyrdom, Ridley and Latimer had formed a partnership, a fellowship for the gospel in England. It was their dream to see England won to a biblical form of Christianity. On one occasion, when pressure was mounting against them, Latimer wrote Ridley, telling him that in his own experience, the more he became settled and steadfast about his own salvation, the bolder he became, and if that hope in his salvation became eclipsed, he wrote, he was fearful and afraid and was disqualified for service. Everything depended upon a personal confidence that Christ's death for him saved him for all time. Eventually, both of these men would be burned at the stake. And as the men were tied to two stakes and wood was placed around them, and as the fire was set under them and started burning the lower parts of their bodies, Hugh Latimer was heard to call out to Nicholas Ridley, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. Indeed, that's precisely what their martyrdom provided. But as we have seen, without a resolute assurance of their salvation, such boldness and such courage, such willingness to sacrifice and resolute determination to preach Christ in the face of the threat of death, that would have been impossible. You know, we've been studying the book of Philippians, and at the outset, we notice that Paul and the Philippians share a fellowship or a partnership in the gospel. Together, Paul and the Philippians are working to take the good news of the gospel into the very heart of the Roman world. It was a courageous goal, for even though Rome claimed to be tolerant of all religions, yet Rome also demanded things of all religions that Christians simply could not do. You know, as we go through this series, I'll be explaining those impossible situations and how that put considerable pressure on Philippian believers. At the time of the writing of this letter, Paul is in chains in Rome, and and the Philippians have responded by taking care of Paul's needs. Paul responds by writing them to tell them how much he thanks God for them, but he does more. Every time he prays for them, he's flooded with joy. And then he tells them two reasons for his joy. 
First, he's thankful for the fruit of their partnership from the first day he met Lydia at the riverbank to pray to the time he was imprisoned in Philippi and led the jailer to faith in Christ. He's thankful since then for the kind partnership they share. And when he thinks of that, he's flooded with joy. He has seen their progress, their fervency, and the growth of the church in that city. But there's a second reason for Paul's joy, and that has everything to do with what he envisions in the future as he thinks about where this partnership or where this fellowship is going. So let's read today's text. It's taken from Philippians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now let's see if we can follow Paul's progression of thought. Remember, I said that Paul expresses two reasons for joy when he prays for the believers in Philippi. The first is that they share a partnership. That I call is the immediate reason for joy. But the ultimate reason for joy is this. It's found in verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Just to be clear, the good work that Christ began in them was the work of salvation. The completion of that work is when they would be delivered from all sin, when Christ returned, gave them a new body, and therefore completed their sanctification. What Paul's expressing is his assurance that first, he knows they will not fall away from the faith, and second, he knows they will safely arrive on heaven's shore and be welcomed into Christ's arms. He is assured of their eternal security. Now, verse 6 is often used as a verse to assert the doctrine of the perseverance of the elect. In plain English, that means that anyone who is truly saved will continue to make progress in the faith until Christ comes back. They will not fall away. They will both make progress and endure until the end. They will not abandon the faith. They will continue to make progress, grow and mature, live for the glory of God until the one who called them takes them home to their eternal reward. Now, is it right to build such a doctrine from verse 6? Well, yeah, I think it is. But before we do, please notice that verse 6 is set in a context. The context, of course, is Paul's thankfulness, which tells us why it is that Paul is so certain about their eternal future. See, Paul is confident because he has observed their steady and faithful participation in the gospel from the time of their salvation until the present. He's watched how they never stop partnering together with other believers and with himself. He's watched their willingness to make sacrifices and even to suffer for the gospel. He's watched their growth in Christ. And he's even watched them grow in boldness as they have made Christ known. You know, the more we study Philippians, the more we'll see these attributes in this group of people. You know, I remember some years ago having a conversation with a man who was largely responsible for me coming to Christ. And I'd been a believer for several years then, and I was learning the scriptures, and I was learning to pray, and and learning to share my faith, and finding my way into serving at a local church. On that day, Pastor Jurgen Schoenvetter said some of the best words I've ever heard. I remember he said, John, I've been praying for you, and I'm delighted to see that you're not merely a brush fire. You know, I've never forgotten that to this day. 
He was saying that he noticed my faith was genuine. See, brush fires burn suddenly and fervently, and then they quickly go out. And you and I know there are people like that, seemingly loving Christ for a time, and then over time, the love is gone. But my pastor said to me what Paul said to those believers, I've been watching your life, and you're no brush fire. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Now, please notice that in Philippians 1.6, the word you, that is, he who began a good work in you, that word you is plural, all of you. I'm convinced that all of you in the church in Philippi will be brought to final salvation. Now, and once we understand that this is what Paul is saying, it makes it somewhat overwhelming. Of course, we don't understand how large the church in Philippi had become by the time of the writing of this letter, but that seems an incredible statement to make. It's as if Paul is saying, I've watched your entire church, and I've seen that this company of believers, your entire group, is genuine. See, that statement has led some to believe that what Paul had in mind in verse 6 must not be about the salvation of all. Perhaps he had in mind no more than than carrying on to completion the partnership they share or the, the mission they had embarked on. Perhaps he's only saying, I believe we will be successful in reaching a large part of the Roman Empire for Christ. But that seems unlikely, even an impossible interpretation of verse 6. Why? Well, because in the next verse, verse 7, Paul speaks about the Philippians as partakers of grace. And then in verse 9, he speaks of their love growing more and more and of them being pure and blameless and so forth. These are the virtues of those who have been saved. Furthermore, the immediate context of verse 6, that the completion of the good work will happen in the day of Christ Jesus must mean at the second coming of Christ. Paul's not saying, that I think I'll reach the entire Roman Empire before Jesus comes back. He is saying, I believe your faith will reach completion when Jesus returns. That is, you will be glorified at his coming. And so as we read verse 6, I hear Paul saying that as he has watched the growth and maturity of believers in Philippi, that he is confident this group of believers will reach their eternal reward. And when we come back, we'll see if we can have the same confidence today. In Paul's words to the Philippian church, we get a sense of what his ultimate reason for joy was, that these believers had genuine faith and were walking in the truth. This is an important issue for us to understand in our own faith journeys as well. Being confident in our salvation and in the cross not only nurtures our spiritual growth, but makes us willing partners with other believers to spread the gospel. Dr. Neufeld wraps up today's message after the break with a final word on why Paul's joy was so rooted in the faith of these believers. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, it's with great sincerity that the entire Back to the Bible ministry team wants to express its deep appreciation for the gracious support of all of our donors. But for this moment, we'd like to express our gratitude to those of you who support this ministry as monthly partners. In normal times, we recognize and value the important role you play. But in unprecedented times as these, the essential nature of your commitment to continue to teach the Bible and share the gospel could not be more obvious. So thank you. Please be assured of our daily prayers for you and your families in challenging times. We extend our gratitude for your partnership in the gospel. 
And remember, all of our resources continue to be made available online at backtothebible.ca. Or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425. We notice that Paul is confident in the perseverance of the Philippian believers. And we also notice that this perseverance is the cause of great joy in the Apostle. It is as if he simply can't get over the delight he feels about this. Now, this is not the only Bible passage that speaks this way. Peter talks that way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. In verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, he thanks God that his readers are born again to a living hope. And then in the next verse, that is verse 4, he promises them an inheritance that is imperishable, kept in heaven for them. Now, that in itself would indicate that Peter believes that the elect cannot lose their salvation. But, but listen to verse 5. There, Peter, speaking of that imperishable inheritance kept for believers, adds, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter believes that, according to the grammar here, that God is continually using his power to guard his people in their eternal inheritance until the second coming, and he is guarding them by means of their faith. Now, it seems to me that's precisely how Paul is speaking in Philippians 1 verse 6. He who began a good work helps answer an important question. How was this good work of salvation begun in the Philippians? Answer. It was begun by God. He was the one who began it. Indeed, even the gift that the Philippians sent Paul when he was in prison, in Paul's mind, is reason not to thank the Philippians, but to thank God, for he had made them faithful. He is the God who is growing their faithfulness. And if it was God's idea and not the Philippians' idea that began the good work, why would the God who started this project of transforming these people in Philippi into the image of Christ, why would he ever abandon the project that he had begun? He won't. He will complete it, says Paul, when Christ returns. And that is, I think, the confidence we must have as well. If it is God who drew me to be his, who moved my heart so that I might seek him, then it is also God who will keep me as his, who will continue to bring me back to repentance, restoration, revival, faithfulness. Paul knows this about the Philippians. His partnership with the Philippians has hardly begun. It's a permanent partnership. Neither he nor they will abandon ship or run from the battle, the battle to know Christ and make him known. Unlike Tolkien's book, The Fellowship of the Ring, this fellowship in the gospel simply will prevail. And that's why Paul is rejoicing. Now let's read verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Notice that Paul is now expressing, well, emotion. It is right for me to feel as I do. It's a good thing for me to have these feelings. Now, that word right here comes from the Greek word, the word that can also be translated as just. And we get our word righteousness and justice from this word. It's the quality of being upright. Paul is saying, I'm acting righteously when I feel this overwhelming sense of joy for you. The right thing or the righteous thing that I do as I pray for you in this prison is to feel joy as I think about you. 
Now, if you're scratching your head right now and saying, yeah, but how can a feeling of joy or happiness be about righteousness? In order to understand this, let's see if I can state the opposite. What if Paul had harbored ill will toward the Philippians? What then? Well, that would have been wrong. Or what if Paul had forgotten to go to God in order to profoundly thank God for the Philippian believers? Again, that would have been immoral. No, the only right action is to overflow with gratefulness for the eternal salvation of this group of believers. Now, please understand that this is emotionally laden language. This is not the language of a theologian explaining the concept of joy. This is the language of an emotional man expressing what lies at the center of his affections. I mean, husbands, have you ever looked at your wife and said, you know, I love you, and you didn't really mean it? Well, sure, we all have. Love you, honey, we say as we run out the door. But imagine this scenario. A wife just heard that she has breast cancer and wonders what that means. And her husband takes her into his arms and he looks at her and he says, I want you to know that no matter what the future holds, I love you, honey. See, that sounds different, doesn't it? And what Paul is saying here is this. The reason I have such joy in you is because I have you at the center of my affections. Furthermore, whether I am off to prison or standing before Caesar's tribunal, I sense in these matters our deep, loving, and satisfying partnership in the gospel. I'm not here in prison alone. I feel I am here with you. And why does he know this? Because he says, you and I are both partakers of grace. We have drunk from the same fountain together. We are one family in this enduring, abiding, everlasting grace. And nothing changes, either when I am in this prison cell chained here, or when I later appear before Caesar's tribunal and give a defense of the gospel. See, let me suggest something. How many of you know that, as Pastor Kent Hughes put it so well, It is virtually a law of spiritual relationships that you will hold very dear to your heart those who have come to Christ under your influence or have grown and benefited from your ministry. I can say the same. For those who have come to Christ or have been renewed in their spiritual life under my ministry personally, there is such a strong bond, I can't even begin to explain it outside of this. I hold you in my heart. But for Paul, this bond is extended because the people whom he led to Christ now share a ministry with him. They've become mature, and they have begun to contribute also to his life. Well, now to verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. Now, verse 8 is actually formed with the language of an oath. Imagine Paul now taking the Philippians to a sacred place, taking them into the presence of God himself. They're in an attitude of solemnity. He raises his hand and takes a vow to illustrate just how serious he is. What I now say, he says, I do before the throne room of heaven that you might know that the words I speak are not the words of a husband running out of the door shouting back, hey, I love you, but the words of a lover in the most trying times imaginable. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about the church being an enduring fellowship, a partnership in a holy mission made up of people with whom we will go on with for eternity. We drank from the same fountain of grace. You ministered to my needs. I taught you the gospel and nurtured you in the faith. And now together, we have a vision of bringing the Roman world the gospel. 
See how sad it is, therefore, when churches wound one another and bring an end to the fellowship of the gospel. I suppose that's one application of what we've read, but here's another one. The one I pointed out at the beginning of this address. When a group of people become absolutely convinced that he who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion, when they are divinely assured of their salvation through Christ and equally assured that they will continue to grow in holiness, and when they find enduring delight in that knowledge, then a sense of boldness and confidence so enters their souls that they actually think the imperial might of Rome is no obstacle to the success of their mission. So let me return to where I began. Are you confident that Christ's death on the cross was for you? Are you confident that you have come to believe because God was gracious to you and called you to be his own? Are you confident that even though you may have setbacks in your faith, that you will not fail to make progress in your faith until Christ perfects you at his coming because God is determined to complete in you what he has begun? And if that's you, then go forward in confidence and have great boldness. But if you're not there, might I invite you to consider the cross of Jesus who promised you that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. Trust in Christ and trust him for all times. John, a great message and a great encouragement. But I wonder, sometimes we might say that today's church in North America wouldn't be characterized as bold. Why would that be? Ben, I think you're right in pointing out that the church is less than bold in North America. I mean, one of the places I think that's seen is in our lack of or fear of doing evangelism. Uh, We wonder exactly what will happen. Maybe I'll be unpopular, something of that nature. And we contrast that with the situation in the early church where faithfulness to the gospel might have cost their lives, and yet they approached it that boldly. I think the answer must be that these New Testament believers were so assured of the promise that God had made that the one who called them would sustain them. And this confidence in God does give this unusual sense of doing what I wouldn't be able to do any other way. As we've studied this passage today, we can certainly understand why Paul was celebrating this fellowship in the gospel amongst the Christians at Philippi. It may also strike us at his depth of confidence in God's ability and power to keep these believers growing and maturing in their faith. I hope and pray that this lesson has not only helped us see the greater context of Paul's words, but that we may be encouraged and reminded of what Christ has done for each one of us. Stay tuned tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld concludes this week of our Philippians series with a message on praying for a fellowship of the gospel. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Many of us find ourselves at home more than usual these days. Solitude can be a refreshing discipline, but a bit more challenging when it's thrust upon us. Today, I wanted to remind you of the many Bible teaching resources you can access for free through Back to the Bible Canada. Every weekday, listen to Dr. Newfeld on this radio station, online at backtothebible.ca, or through our podcast or free mobile app. Not only today's program, but there's a vast library of Bible teaching series online. Other resources include our weekly young adult program, In Doubt, or the daily airing of Laugh Again. And most recently, for five weeks beginning March 22nd, 
We'll begin to air a special Bible teaching video series aired every Sunday morning available at backtothebible.ca or the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information about all of these resources and more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.